you know, I was literally snooping on my Slack messages for work and because I can still read everybody's messages even though I'm off, you know what I mean? So uh-huh. I can see like what kind of calls are being booked and like what's going on. And I was snooping on um, one of my electricians talking with the on-call dispatcher and they were literally talking about, I what I jumped into was them referring to a latex fetish. And I'm then, sorry. Yeah, and then that spurred into Kyle saying that he watched this show called like, like something about addictions, like weird addictions or something. Oh, like My Strange Addictions. Yeah. I watched that literally last night. So he said he was watching an episode just the other day, and it was talking about somebody with a balloon fetish, oh. and that he was doing naughty things to a balloon. That's like a, I've heard that that's like a community in the There's world. There's a community of that? Yeah. I mean, not to, not to put any negative feelings out there towards that. But I don't get it. <laughs> I'm confused. But there's like a whole community. But I watched um, My Strange Addiction last night, and there's a girl on there, and she would eat sand. She would eat it? sand. That would hurt like, your throat. She would like lick her finger and dip it in sand, and then like scrape the sand onto the back of her teeth and just like crunch it. And then when she couldn't get sand, she would chew on nail files. <laughs> Ew. Yeah. I feel like her teeth would be a little You would like, think. She actually had really nice teeth. And I'm like, maybe, maybe that's what I need to start doing. Maybe it scratches all the plaque off. <laughs> maybe. Probably also all the enamel. Oh. So I wouldn't recommend it. Yeah, I don't know about that. That's frightening. I feel like I can't handle those fetishes that involve like eating, like the people who eat their hair and stuff. Ooh. That's scary. Yeah, gross. And that can kill you. Did you know that? Yeah, I used to chew on my hair as a kid because, like, oh, I, I was a child. Oh, I, was a child. I hate people that do that. That's so fucking <laughs> gross. Know. And you're like, wait, I did that. Okay, but mine wasn't a fetish. I was seven. That's true. Um, That's and true. then my mom would always tell me that it would gather a hairball and I'd have to have surgery. Ooh, Brianna's here. And Colin. Can I heart this? No. no. It won't let me. My dad's here, too, you guys. Isn't that exciting? Oh. Shout out to my dad. Um, I think my mom's going to join... Mm. And my grandma. Oh, this is your grandma's so sweet. This is like a family reunion. My grandma said, "Ask for Stephen's address so that she can send him letters." Why? <laughs> because she said, "What if he's sad out there?" Oh, that's actually like, that's actually wait, really Wait, hold cute. on. That's really nice. She said she's gonna send him. She wants to send him cards so that he has something to look forward to. <laughs> oh, and I was like, wait, that's so nice. Can I get added to her mailing Colin. list? Yeah, you should. She would probably do it though, because she's like the nicest lady ever. Why don't she laughed at my jokes the last time we had a podcast? So did she? That's good. Made me feel good. Okay, should we start because we have a decent group, or should we wait for my mother? I feel like we could probably start. Yeah, go ahead. Okay. So, oh my goodness. Okay, I'm gonna start mine with this really crazy murder that happened in 1996. And I thought this one was interesting because I feel like a lot of podcasts do their stories on like, like local, like American murders and American serial killers and like Ted Bundy and like all those crazy people. And I think it's interesting. I want when we do it for us to throw in like international ones because there's like really crazy just in my research because I knew I wanted to do a European one. And I was looking at ones in Australia they have like crazy serial killers really yeah like and they have like these crazy stories and like i know everywhere has them but i was reading about these stories where like entire families going missing 
like vanishing without a trace in Australia. Oh. So that's how I started like thinking. And then as I was researching, I remembered that I had listened to a podcast about this one. And I was like, wait, this one is going to be perfect because it's like, it, it's just got everything you want. It's got like mystery. Everything and, I want in a murder. Everything you want in a murder. Aside of like the fact that someone died. Cause I mean, that sucks. But if it's going to happen, at least this one's interesting. So, okay. So this one starts in Ireland, but it's a little bit confusing because the young woman that was killed was from France. So she, her main residence and her job and her family, they all live in France, but she has this Irish home and it's where she goes to like get away from it all because where she's from and the industry she's in, she's, she's into like film producing and she's around like actresses and actors a lot. And it's kind of an uppity lifestyle and really like she's more of a down to earth person and she, she really doesn't enjoy that stuff at all but she has to go to like outings and red carpet events because those are her movies. I know, right? (laughs) But she really likes to read and she's into um, like poetry and she likes to sit down and drink a cup of coffee with the house empty. And that's like what she spends her free time doing. So her name is Sophie Toscan du Plantier, which is like the most French name I've ever heard in my life. And so, like I said, she was a French film producer she was a wife and a mother. She married Daniel Toscan Duplantier, who was the president of a French film promotion agency. Um, she had a son before she married Danielle from her first marriage, and his name was Pierre. Um, at the time that all this happened, she was, I think, 39, and her son was 15. So he was a bit older, and so he he wouldn't have to come with her to Ireland. She could go by herself because he was kind of old enough to kind of stay home in France. Um, And plus the new husband, Daniel, kind of like adopted him a little bit. Like not like legally, but really looked after him. Took him under his own way or whatever. Yeah, exactly. So she goes to Ireland to stay in her other home. It's like a holiday home. And it's in this small town called Skull. Um, and so for anybody who hasn't been to this town, the locals described it as quiet, um, but that's really an understatement. It's like 700 people live there. So it's tiny, like it's literally a village, if that makes sense. So it's like predominantly known as a fishing village. And if you look it up on Google, you can see this like long winding road that comes down from Dublin and then it goes down to the coast of Ireland and it just follows the coast all the way down to this tiny little village. And then the road just keeps going. So it's almost like this is just like a stop on this like crazy road. So it's kind of in the middle of nowhere. And that's what she liked about it. Yeah. Because she's just like isolated. Wants to be alone. Yeah. And she stays there a lot. So the villagers know her. And she's sociable, but she doesn't really like go out, out. But they know who she is. They know where she lives and things like that. And this town is so small that like everybody knows everybody. Um, There's not really secrets per se, because like, if you're going to go out with some guy, people are going to see you like they're going to just know, you know. So she goes to visit this town. Um, She stays in her holiday home and it's like weirdly close to Christmas. And I remember like the journalist talking about how it's kind of strange that she would be off on her own so close to the holidays. Um, And so she actually had a plane ticket. for, I think, Christmas Eve to fly home. 
So she was like cutting it pretty close to the holidays, but she still planned on going back to France. Um, but all of that got interrupted because two days before Christmas, the her neighbor found her bludgeoned and bloody body oh, at the sorry. end of her driveway. And when her neighbor finds her, it's already the next morning, and it's presumed that whatever happened to her would have happened the night before, um, just because nobody heard anything, nobody saw anything, and there had been sightings of her the night before, just um, kind of like towards the evening when she, like, I think she went to a grocery store or something. So they know that it happened sometime in the late hours of the night, but because she lives in the middle of nowhere, there's no witnesses, nobody saw anything, nobody heard screams, and her neighbor is like far, like they're really interspersed on this road. So it's not like it's like her next door neighbor right there, you know. It's he, like down a bit. Yeah, exactly. I don't know exactly how far, but, and I don't recall why her neighbor ended up going up to her driveway. I don't remember if it was like she was going to ask her for something or whatever, but she ends up walking up the driveway. There's a little gate at the end and she was found pretty near the gate. And so the police are called immediately, but this is such a small town and like anybody who listens to true crime podcasts or is into, you know, researching this stuff, a lot of us know that when a murder happens in a small town, some sketchy shit can happen. Yeah, it's not always handled with uh, the right care. No, and a lot of times these these police, they've never seen anything like this. They've just never encountered it. And that's exactly what happened in Skull. They've just never seen anything like this. So the police there are called the Garde, and they arrived pretty quickly but weren't able to collect much evidence at all. The body had likely been exposed to the elements all throughout the night. Um, so they finally end up getting the examiner to take the body away to do the autopsy. And once the autopsy is done, they realize that she has over 50 different wounds. And many of them look... 50? Yeah. Which to me, like, 50 wounds is like crime of passion. Like, like stab wounds or... Well, that's what they are, like, investigating. There's wounds of different kinds, but many of them are... They look as though they've been created with a blunt object of some kind. And so the police investigate the surrounding area and they find like a rock, like seriously, like a, like a big fucking rock. And the police are like, they bring this to the examiner and the examiner. And when it comes to autopsies like this, a lot of times the examiner can't tell exactly what caused it based on the wound, but he can rule out what did not cause it. And so a lot of times like autopsy examiners will take the most common murder weapons in their head, like a knife or a gunshot wound or, um, you know, all these different, <laughs> I don't know. An owl. An owl. An owl. <laughs> like the staircase. That, that's a crazy story too. We're going to talk about that. Okay. Deal. We have to. So basically they bring the rock in and the examiner says like, it's extremely likely that this caused these wounds. I can't say that it did for sure, but it, can't be ruled out as a weapon. And so the police kind of take that and they determine that that's going to be their most likely um, like murder weapon for the scene. The rock? Yeah, the rock. So then they go into her home and they start investigating. Oh, my dad asked the best question. He said, was this the West Cork on Audible? This is exactly the West Cork on Audible. That's the podcast that I got much of this information from. And it's like a, I think it's a seven or eight part 
series Ooh. and it goes like start to finish every step of it this goes case. deep it goes deep so they investigate her home and they notice that their kitchen table has two chairs pulled out not just one and so which is weird if she lives alone and intended to go there to be alone exactly and so it's kind of gives them the impression that maybe she had had a guest or something but what's crazy is the police kind of release that information to the public and her acquaintances or a friend of hers actually makes a a call to the police and says the fact that there were two chairs pulled out doesn't mean anything because i know sophie and she likes to sit at the kitchen table and put her feet up on another chair and drink her coffee or her tea and read her book and so sounds cozy yeah exactly so her friend stepped in and kind of maybe shed a little bit of like like criticism on the the idea that maybe she had a guest over which her friend doesn't necessarily mean that it didn't happen but it does kind of give you this idea of like we don't know we really just don't know so it looks like she might have had a visitor nobody really knows um there's no dna linking anybody to the crime and it's 1996 and frankly i don't really think dna was being taken that seriously back then I know that we were making like, like we were making way in terms of like DNA testing, but I don't think we were quite to the point where it was like standard routine to right. test. Um, and either way, they couldn't really find any anyways. And so the next afternoon, after the body is found that morning, after they've investigated her home and found the chairs, and after they've compiled what little evidence that they have, that afternoon, journalists are already starting to show up to report and to get a look at the house and see if the body's still there. And they're trying to like get as much info as they can to report to the news stations. But what's interesting is one journalist in particular shows up before everybody else. And it's not just like a few minutes before, it's before the entire like wolf pack per se. He's there first and everybody else comes after. And so the police kind of look at this like with suspicion and it's kind of this idea of like in such a small town, how did he know that this was happening already? And so it's not really like a lead of any by any means. But it's just weird. It's weird. And it's weird enough for them to be like, hmm, I think we need to look into this. Just jot in that down real quick. Exactly. They literally jotted it down and they filed that away for the, their investigation. So... Over the next few days, the police begin questioning the locals to figure out if anybody had seen anything or heard anything, anybody knew or heard rumors, because in such a small town, rumors go crazy. So they start investigating locals, and this is when they start investigating the journalist that showed up early. His name is Ian Bailey. And so they start pushing him hard for more information on how he found out about the murder, why he was there before everybody else. And he doesn't really have good answers. He kind of dodges the questions altogether, which is a little bit suspicious. It's like, if you just found out in some weird way, then why wouldn't you just say it, you know? So what Ian's excuse is for why he was there early is he says, well, my editor told me about it. And so they're like, okay, well, that could make sense. So they call the editor. And she says, actually, that's funny that he says that because I did call him and say that something had happened. And Ian's response was, it was a murder. So the editor didn't, she knew she had gotten wind that police were involved in something in Skull. 
And she claims... So he knew first. Yes. Really. Really, like, in the way that works in journalism is, like, oftentimes editors will get tips from locals and they will, like, dispatch their journalists in the area. And by the time she called Ian, it was almost as if he already knew. So she kind of corroborates this idea and continues to raise this, like, suspicion with the police because they're like, see, he, this is... How did he know and why was he there so early? Exactly. What does he he Mm -hmm. know? So a lot of people get confused when they, like, research the story because from this point on, Ian Bailey is their prime suspect. They are set in stone that this is fishy. This doesn't make sense. And it really only took this small bit of suspicious information for them to start investigating him pretty heavily. So they bring him in for further questioning after the editor makes those comments. And they start asking him questions like you would expect, like, what were you doing that night? Where were you? Who were you with? Can anybody corroborate your stories? And in his podcast, it's really interesting because the Audible podcast managed to get Ian Bailey to interview throughout the entire thing. Really? Yeah. And that's the weird thing about Ian Bailey is you would think that if you're being investigated for murder, that you would be really quiet about that. Yeah. He's not quiet about it at all. And so that's the thing with him is he is like this eccentric, weird kind of guy. He's extremely narcissistic. Um, It doesn't necessarily like you're not like clued into that right when you hear him speak. But over the course of this podcast, you listen to him say these things about himself and how he's going to be a famous poet one day. And he says all of these things and it's like unprompted. I don't like it. And he, I don't like he it. loves to talk about himself. He loves to talk about himself. And so it's crazy when you listen to the podcast because he's in it a lot. And they ask him point blank about these things. So you listen to the podcast and you hear Ian's account of what the police asked him. And it's really interesting because the producers of the podcast ask him those same questions to see what they're going, what he's going to say, what his story is going to be. And he like dodges the questions, like simple questions. Like, what were you doing last night? He'll say things like, well, how does anybody really remember? Oh, God. Yeah. And he, he's got this like attitude to him. Like he's smarter than them. And so it's like, which I feel like this might just be me stereotyping, but I feel like that's fairly typical with killers mm-hmm. and murderers. Yeah. It's like this. And maybe I'm jumping, but that's well, pretty normal. And then they so, oh, often they like, they want to be like in the front and like close to the murder because exactly. then it like is supposedly supposed to take attention off of them if they're close to it yeah and i don't know how that works but that's a lot and that's a really common trait of sociopaths in general and not all sociopaths are murderers and not all murderers are sociopaths but there are times that those those two things like line up perfectly a sociopath happens to also murder somebody and there's a lot of reasons for why that's true Um, but in the research of these sociopaths, a lot of times sociopaths are these people that have this like elevated opinion of themselves. Like they've got this, this attitude to them that they can outsmart anybody. And so it's kind of tough because let's say he is a sociopath. Nobody will ever really know unless he admits to it in some way, but let's say he is, even if he didn't commit the murder, the whole situation could just be annoying to him and he could be wanting to like play cat and mouse with them. So to me, his attitude doesn't necessarily mean he's guilty. 
It could just be that he's fucking annoying. But either way, <laughs> it really hinders the investigation. Whether he's toying with them because he's annoyed or whether he's toying with them because he's guilty, it it's it's fucking ridiculous. Like yeah. if you're innocent, just answer the question. And then go away. Yeah, like you think you would just be like, oh my God, no, this is crazy. Like I wanna find the murderer too. So this is what I was doing, this is where I was. That's not what happens in this case. So with these like dodging answers, these like not wholly truthful, this attitude of I don't remember, it just adds to the police's suspicion and it just makes them push harder. And so it's really tough because people from the outside look at this case and they say that the police focused on him too quickly and they maybe didn't investigate other alternatives, which they did investigate some, but we'll never really know how much they investigated them. And so there is some truth to that, that they did start investigating him very quickly. But it's- Well, how could you almost like not when he's sticking out so much? Yeah, it's like he wanted them to, which is even weirder, you know? So it's hard to feel bad for him when he acts this way. So like they investigate him pretty adamantly he says that he had no involvement in it. He adamantly denies even having met her. And that's an important point. He, he tells the police that his exact comment is essentially that he's never even seen her, which is also important because he says these things in his investigation, uh, in the investigation of him, I should say. And you would think that he would know they're going to look into that because that's the whole job of the investigator is to poke holes in stories. And it doesn't matter how small the holes are. If you're, if you're lying, lying about this, what else could you lie about? Precisely. And that's what they're going to say, like, in a court of law. They're going to tell the jury, well, he, maybe we don't have enough evidence, but if he lied about this, what else is he lying about? So it's weird that he would make these really definitive statements. I've never even seen her. Knowing that they're going to research that. And, and I'm assuming they research it and he's lying. Exactly. So later on, they end up pulling more witnesses, and there's a lady who says it was like a neighbor or something, and he was there. He he would do like odd jobs sometimes. So he goes to a neighbor's house in the weeks or months before the murder, and he's gonna do like yard work for her or something. The neighbor that found her dead. No, I think it's a different neighbor, but I'm not mm. sure on that. Um, but he's doing yard work, and he admits that he had seen her in the window. And in another, right after saying he's never seen her? Yeah. Well, not in the same conversation, well, yeah, but it well. comes out that he had seen her and he had made that comment to several people. And he even goes as far, like, and this, we're going to jump ahead because this is months into the investigation. Obviously, he's, like, interrogated multiple times. And the purpose of that is to get him in a lie, to catch him. Mm-hmm. So they do another interrogation, I think, months down the road. And they show a picture of her and they ask him again if he'd ever seen her. And actually, I'm sorry, we're going to go back. They don't show him a picture. They don't show him a picture of her at all. And in the same conversation, they say, have you ever met her? And he makes a comment about how she looked pretty plain. He thought she was like a plain looking girl. I've never seen her, but she's really plain. Exactly. And the police are like, what are you talking about? And he claims in the podcast, because now the producers are like, but didn't you say that? Didn't you say she looked plain? And doesn't that kind of contradict everything you just said? And he says... Well, what I meant by that was that the pictures I'd seen on the news of her looked plain. And at that point, I did know what she looked like. And so the police are taking it out of context. 
they're asking if I'd ever seen I mean, seen I guess her. that makes sense, but, like, why do you just gotta be so confusing? Exactly. Like, why wouldn't you just say, like, well, from the pictures on the news I'd seen of her, she yeah. looked like a normal person. Yeah. But he just says everything in such a cryptic way, and I think it's because he thinks that he's so smart. Like, you know what I mean? Yeah. So, in the early weeks of the murder, um, so she's murdered on December 23rd of 1996 in the... In January of 1997, so the following month, a local lady named Marie Farrell calls the Garda, um, the Guardier, which is the police. She calls from a payphone. So she's just another lady who lives in town, and she has a tip for the police. But the problem with, um, what's her name? Maria? <laughs> what's her name? I don't know. This is your story. Marie? Marie. The problem with Marie is she has an eyewitness account of something very strange that happened that same night that she was murdered. But the problem with Marie is the reason that she was even out and about this late at night was because she was cheating on her husband. So when she calls the police station, she doesn't want to give her actual name because because then then her husband's going to know she's cheating. And then yes, that's so she complicates all this even further by calling into the police station from a payphone, giving a different name, and saying that that night she was driving down that windy road that leads to Skull, driving back home from a date, (laughs) and she crosses this bridge near Sophie's home. And on the bridge, she sees a guy in a trench coat who looks to be hitchhiking, but it's late at, this is three in the morning. Oh. Yeah, on the night that a lady is bludgeoned to death near that area. So likely that it's connected somehow. So the police's challenge with this tip is, A, how can we even tell that this person is credible because we don't know who they are because they're giving us a fake name? Mm -hmm. And how do we prove that that was Ian? That's the kicker, you know? So it all ends up clouding this entire investigation. All of these weird circumstances, (laughs) this small town with these rumors, and it just makes everything so much more difficult to investigate. So the police continue focusing on Ian. They're convinced that this is the guy. This is the guy. Like, And they're going to do whatever they can to, to prove that, basically. Which is a really terrifying thought because the police are supposed to be looking for evidence that leads to a murder. They're not supposed to try to twist evidence. To make it fit. To make it fit. So... That's where this whole case gets confusing. So she calls in that tip in January. In February, um, a schoolboy named Malachi Reed gives a statement to police that recently after the murder, he had been given a ride home from Ian Bailey. And I don't really know the backstory to this. I don't know why some schoolboy was given a ride home by Ian Bailey, but he was. Um, and Ian Seems Bailey, sketchy, but... yeah, Ian Bailey admits. I don't know if like he's a neighbor or something. Okay. Who knows? But He gives a statement to police that says, during the ride home, Ian told him to his face that he killed Sophie. And he even goes as far as to say, Ian said to me, I went up there with a rock and bashed her fucking brains out. I'm sorry. Why would you confess this to a little schoolboy? Well, why would you confess that at all? But it's like, why? And the thing with this case is like, there are people on both sides of the fence. There are people that 
adamantly believe Ian Bailey is guilty. And there are people that feel like even if maybe he is, it's not enough. There's not enough evidence. But what ends up fucking all of this up is that he says shit like this. He says shit like this. He does interviews with podcasters professing his innocence. He makes statements to the news. Just he pick a side, say it, and then go away. Well, you think that if you're being investigated for murdering a foreign, like, like national, you would think he would sh- just shut the fuck up Literally. and go home and just stay there and just not... You not involve yourself more than you need to. But that's not at all what he does. What an idiot. Every step of the way. The craziest thing to me is throughout this entire investigation, and I'll kind of I'll kind of like spoil it in a way by saying like this investigation goes over the course of years. Mm-hmm. Like and you would think that if you're continuously being investigated for years, that you would fucking move away. Because he's not even yeah. from Ireland. He's in he's from the UK. And he moved to Ireland in the late to mid-90s. So you would think that if you move to Ireland, that's not even your home country. You are being investigated for a murder that you're claiming you didn't commit. You think you would, like, move back home. Like, get away from it. Get away from all the people who don't trust you. Get away from all the rumors. And distance yourself from the madness. But instead, he, like, burrows in. He refuses to leave West Cork. He refuses to acknowledge the people that think he's guilty. And he just continues to say wacky shit. It's like at this point, they should just arrest him for being so fucking annoying. That's pretty much what they do. No, Wait, really? Yeah. Arrest him? They, they end up arresting him oh. because the thing is about these international murders is like shit works different over there. Every country, every whatever, every city maybe has different laws. They have different procedures. They have a different way of going about things. And so... Basically, the Irish police in West Cork, they do arrest him because they say, fuck you. This is insane. You're being an idiot. You're in the way. But the thing is, is like they can arrest you and forcibly bring you in for questioning. But if you don't provide any more evidence to their case, they have to let you go. Mm. So they end up using that power and arresting him on two different occasions. And they end up even arresting his wife. What does she do? They they arrest her on charges of murdering Sophie. Because they can. How is that? They basically they basically word it in such a way that there's no way she doesn't know more. And it, like obstructing justice. Yeah, it's basically like obstructing justice, but they're they word it in such a way that you're just as guilty. And if you're obstructing this case in such a way that you know he did it and you're not admitting to it, you're fucking arrested too. Which makes sense. If he did it, Mm -hmm. but what if he didn't? Then she's just very unlucky. That's the thing. It's funny you say that because in all my research on this case, I read this quote that I think is hilarious. And basically, I'm going to summarize it, but somebody makes, makes a comment and says, this case lasts over two decades. And so, two decades. Two decades. And he's being investigated all along the way. And so a journalist or somebody makes a statement that says Ian Bailey is either the most harassed and unfortunate victim in this game that there is, or he's getting away with murder. There's no in between. He either did it and it's think? disgusting or he's a victim here. Do you think he did it or do you think he's a victim? Well, let's or talk it too about early that. To ask? Well, here's the thing. 
so we have all this evidence we have all this weird wacky shit he's making these statements and stuff but to me like the the reason the audible podcast is so interesting is because Ian Bailey agrees to do the podcast he's extensively interviewed in all of this because he's the most important person there is so it's important to understand like who Ian Bailey is as a person. So that's kind of what I want to talk about. So I wrote my notes here. I think I did pretty well describing him. So I said to understand exactly why Ian Bailey is questioned so hard with such little evidence, it's important to understand who he was as a person. While he denies having any involvement in Sophie Toscana Duplantier's murder, his actions over the next decades caused suspicion to grow all over the world. So I go in to talk about the podcast on Audible. It's called West Cork, Every Countryside Has a Dark Side. And they do direct interviews where Ian and listen, well, listeners who listen to the podcast can hear Ian speak for himself about who he is, the murders, and his life. And it's all in his own words. Um, So in the podcast, we can hear clearly that Ian Bailey loves to be the center of attention. He loves that he's doing this podcast. In some weird, sick way, he gives off this, like, attitude of, like, he thinks... Like he's a star. Like he's a star. And yes, he's a... And then he also spins it in, like, oh, I'm a victim. I'm a victim in all this, and it's so unfair that I was treated this way. So let's kind of go into who Ian Bailey is to make this kind of make even more sense. Um, Ian Bailey love to be the center of attention. He spends much of his time writing poetry and he even makes a comment on the podcast where he says that he's going to be a famous poet one day. Okay. I feel like as like the only thing you're famous for is being fucking annoying. Literally. (laughs) No, literally. So he was also the kind of man who would wear a long trench coat for no apparent and a direct quote from me would wear a trench coat for no apparent fucking Did you say reason. A direct quote from you? From me. Oh, okay. This is a direct quote from my note. No fucking reason. Oh. And so he was also the kind of person who would walk with a fucking cane for no fucking reason. He would Didn't somebody see somebody in a trench coat? Yeah. Oh. Isn't that interesting? That is very interesting. And that's a known fact about Ian is back in this time period he likes to wear a trench coat for no reason. It's like he thought he looked like professional. He's, like, the kind of guy, like, maybe this is a stretch, but he's, like, the kind of guy that I feel like would wear a monocle. Oh, that's what I was picturing. Literally. Like, this is Ian Bailey as a human being. And, like, the the kind of person that, like, when any subject gets brought up, they have to know the most about it. Yes. And you're like, okay, great, thank you. So, on that note, get ready for this. He's the kind of guy who would go into pubs. Like, so, in Skull, this is such a small town, there's, like, two pubs. There's not many options. So, if you went it's the out, pub or the other pub, literally. <laughs> so if you went out, you would probably see Ian Bailey in the pub because a known fact about Ian Bailey is he's quite the drinker. So if you lived in Skull in the nineties, you might go to a pub to have a beer, and in this pub you would see Ian Bailey in a trench coat with a cane, reading his poetry out loud. Ew, unprovoked. <laughs> Gross. Yeah, and like. I feel like I'm being really judgy here about this, but I'm sorry. Nobody cares. If you go to the bar or pub in America or in Europe, don't ever fucking read your poetry out loud unprovoked. Don't do it. I promise that 98% of the people there don't fucking care. They don't want to hear it. They want to talk about their lives and their day. They want to 
get drunk, play darts. Like, they do not come to the pub to listen to some guy in a trench coat with a cane reading his self-written poetry. And this, this is who Ian Bailey was. And it gets even worse. Like, there's this story about him that I took from the podcast because I think that it is a prime example of the kind of person he is. What? I'm sorry, but do you remember the time that we went to the bar and I got growled at by a deaf guy? Oh my god. Do you remember that? Did he want to give you a picture? Yeah, well, he was drawing pictures of, like, of a scary guy and then I came to look at it and then I got like kind of close to him and then he like, got up and he said, rah, 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 and then it was terrifying that and was... I almost cried and they tried to give me a hug. That was so scary. We're That's in, like the sketchiest bar. That's the kind it. of weird shit that I'm sorry that you see in Ogden, Utah. Like that's exactly the kind of thing I. Expect that's all to I could see. think of when you were just saying weird guy in a bar. That's all. <laughs> it's so funny, you guys, because for anybody listening, our friend Colton is in our in our audience as well. And unfortunately for Colton, he was there that night. <laughs> and the guy was so scary. He was drawing like literally like terrifying Pictures. images on like they were actually pretty good, but he was like they were scary good of like horror skulls and like stuff, scary stuff and, like, and i got like close to look at it because he was like this is gonna sound mean because he was like fronting at me because he couldn't speak yeah and he was obviously very drunk and old and crusty yeah and he was like nah, nah, nah. and i was like what and i was like new i was like why well, new i said i was, I was fresh <laughs> so i come over and look at it and he goes nah, nah, and he comes and he grabs me that was, it was scary. so scary that was so scary no that was not our not mm-hmm. our vibe needless to say we immediately left the bar and walked like a mile to, to get the other bars that was scary okay Glad so we this is like this dude ian bailey i took this story right out of a podcast and i'm gonna read my notes on it um because i think that the podcast does a great job of showing exactly who he is so i said back in the 1970s john hawkins decided to take bailey in as an assistant reporter so john hawkins was already a journalist he wanted to start his own firm and he was looking for an assistant that he would be able to take under his wing to grow him into like a great journalist to essentially maybe be a partner with him one day so he meets ian bailey and the thing about ian is he's actually a very charismatic guy um, and if he wasn't, which is pretty typical for killers, it is pretty typical. And if it wasn't for this charisma, I feel like he could not get away with the shit that he gets away with, like like Ted Bundy. Yeah, precisely. So he meets Ian Bailey, and he even says in his own words, "I thought of him as a charming young man, and I saw serious potential in him as a writer and a reporter." So he takes him under his wing, and John Su- soon realized that Ian did what he wanted when he wanted. He makes a a comment in the podcast where John Hawkins does an interview and he says, when Ian wrote, he wrote well. But the problem is, is I would give him these assignments and if he didn't feel like it, he wouldn't fucking go. And so he was like, I kept him around for so long because when he finally did his fucking job, he did it really well. And so there was this element of like, I do want him, but at the same time, is it fucking worth it? Because he's a spoiled he's a brat. Hassle. He is a hassle. So a great example is um, basically like in the journalism. I don't know if it's like this in America, but in Europe, they would have these gatherings where like journalists and like networkers they would get together and have these like parties. But really, it would be to talk about stories and network and meet new people to you know what I mean to like make stories and mm-hmm. to get better in the field. 
Ian would go to these parties that are meant for work and he would get shit faced and do nothing <laughs> but chit chat and do whatever he wanted. And this sounds was, good to me. Yeah. And I mean, really, he had the life. Like, he had this guy that was willing to put up with it. So, the. This all comes to a boiling point in this journalism career where John pays to send him to an eight-week journalism course. So he wants to send him to make him a better writer, and he's hoping that it will, like, level him out and make it so that he is... Oh, my gosh. My dad wants to join our conversation. Okay, hold on, everybody. Hello? Oh, he left. Uh, Sorry, Dad. I missed your call. So... John Hawkins sends Ian to this eight-week journalist course, and get this, instead of fucking going, Ian Bailey breaks into their office where they work together, throws a fucking party, trashes (laughs) it, and when John Hawkins gets there the next morning, his writing and paperwork is on the ground and stepped on and trashed. There's beer cans all over, and it smells of pot. And this is, like, their professional business together. Nice. So, at that point, he fires Ian, which is, I feel like, fair. Fair. Yeah. And tells him, like, I can't do it anymore, you know? And Ian basically gives him a big fucking middle finger and says, I'm sorry, but I'm the best thing that's ever happened to you. And then Ian Bailey leaves and starts up his own business in the next town over. Did it fail? Because I really hope it did. I don't know for sure, but the the craziest part is John Hawkins took this as a big slap in the face because essentially Ian gave him a big fuck you and then became his direct competitor. After everything that he did for him, you know? Yeah. So it's just really goes to show like what kind of a person he is and the fact that after everything John Hawkins did for him, he's got this attitude of like, I'm the best thing that's ever happened to you. Even though he never would have gotten into the field in the first place. At this point, I don't even care. Well, I care who did it. Yeah. But I just want him to go to jail forever. Yeah. So on top of all this, there's a lot of incidents. He ends up marrying a woman named Jules Thomas. They're still together to this day. She's remained by his side through all of it, sometimes to the point of suspicion. Dumb. What's crazy is friends and peers and Jules herself has admitted that Ian Bailey has committed multiple instances of domestic violence against her. And so much so that she has been hospitalized on multiple occasions because he's beaten her so badly. And they're still together. Um, So he's got a drinking problem and Jules says that he only does these things when he's drunk. Um, So basically the story the story's kind of reaching like this boiling point where everybody at this point really takes a side. Most people think that this evidence is really um, circumstantial. There's nothing linking him there. There's no real eyewitness that has seen him or heard him there. There's not even really anybody that's seen the two of them together. There's a couple sightings that maybe they were in town. Did they have any other suspects? No. They thought maybe an ex-boyfriend who had stalked her at one point, but he had an alibi that completely checked out. He wasn't even in the country. That'll, that'll save you, I guess. So they thought maybe an ex-husband, the one who the she first had kid. the son. The first kid. The only yeah, kid. The only kid. And he was ruled out as a suspect, too. 
Um, so basically, like, my recommendation is for everybody that's interested in a case like this or wants to know more to listen to this podcast or do your own research, because throughout all of this investigative research, the police in West Cork made a lot of mistakes of their own. They even went as far as paying a borderline homeless person to follow Ian Bailey around and then become his friend. Oh, your dad's calling again. Oh, my dad's calling. Maybe I won't miss it. Okay. Hello? Wow. Is that at the same time? Hello? Dad? Yeah? Hey, what's up? <laughs> Nothing. That is that still on Audible? Yeah. I. So when I had my Audible subscription, you get like those Audible originals once a month too. And this podcast is an Audible original. So you get to get it for free if you have a membership, if that makes sense. So not free. Not free, but free. It's really good though. You well, have it's it. super long, right? Yeah, I think it's, it's eight or nine episodes, and each episode is like an hour and a half or more. Wow. It's really good. Why? Are you going to get it? No. I, I had it, and I listened to two or th- It was a lot of episodes. I don't remember how many it was. Three yeah. Three or four of them. And I got into it, but then I, then it started getting really slow, so I stopped. It does get a bit slower, but I highly recommend it. So, okay, I'm going to wrap this one up because Jenna has to tell her story, too, and hers is really good. So I'm Go gonna ahead. Go. I just wanted to know if that was the same one. It is. It's super good. Okay, love you. Bye. Okay, see ya. Bye. So all of this evidence is, like, pointing to Ian, but none of it is, like, hard evidence. It's not DNA. It's not witnesses. It's not an admission of guilt. Yeah. It's all this circumstantial shit that, like, basically boils down to Ian is a fucking fuckface. He's a douche. He's a douchey fuckface who is toying with police almost as if to make it look like he's guilty. But not enough. But not enough to actually prove it. And I really think at the end of the day, he thinks it's funny. So all of this said and done, there's way more to the story than I even am ever going to have time to tell. And Ian Bailey is arrested in Ireland twice. And it's kind of in that way that I said earlier, like it's just to get him to talk more. Mm -hmm. And he doesn't. So on both occasions, he ends up being let go. And the case ends with essentially the biggest cliffhanger in all of true crime, of in my opinion. So in France, they have these laws where if a French native is murdered anywhere in the world, France gets to hold a trial too. Good. I like that. It's interesting to think about. But it goes I like it. even a step further where you can hold the trial without the person there. Oh, like the, the suspected the, the person. Suspect. I was like, yeah, they're dead. Okay, the suspect. Okay. <laughs> Especially not the victim. <laughs> so they petitioned to have Ian Bailey extradited for the murder of Sophie, mm-hmm. and it's denied. So um, they're just going to do it without him? So they hold what's called a trial in absentia for the murder of Sophie Toscan Duplantier. Um, they hold I'm this trial. I'm impressed at how good you just said that. I'm really? sorry. That was Thank, really you. Good. Thank <laughs> like, you. I could never. I took two years of French. So this trial starts in 2019 in May. Such a good month. It's my birthday month. Yes. Um, but anyways, happy <laughs> birthday to me because he's found guilty three days later. And does, um, does that like follow through to other countries where he gets no, in trouble? No. Or he's just guilty because, in Because the extradition is denied. So in, essentially... 
France placed all of this evidence that has been gathered, whether by the Irish police or their own whoever. investigation, whoever is willing to come forward. Mind you, this is 20 plus years, like 23 years after the murder. And some of the witnesses who made statements have died. died yeah. So they hold a trial without him there. They use the evidence that they have and they convict him of murder and they sentence him to prison time. But because their extradition did not go through, he's living to this day a free man. I think he lives in England. But I'm assuming he can't go to France. Oh, God, no. <laughs> the minute he steps foot in he's France, arrested. he's arrested. Isn't that shit That's wild. wacky? It's the wackiest shit. That's wild. I don't even know. What do you think? I think he did it. You do? Yeah. Like, who else? I mean, not that... There were other people there, obviously. Yeah. But... I want him to be guilty of it because I don't like him as a person. Me either. And it's just so crazy because... It, just, it would be so nice if it fit. It and would if be. it didn't, I'd be mad. Because it's like, what if it Because it's somebody else. random. They would have just, like, sat back and just laughed while all this happened for however many years it's been. Mm-hmm. But... I don't know. So everybody needs to go listen to the podcast on Audible. I think there's a book on it, too, and I found so many articles that kind of give the exact timeline, and there is even more to the story than I'm able to say because the police do sketchy things. They have these recordings of them where they try to, like, coerce people to admit. It's just not right. It's not pretty. It's not good. It's not a good investigation. Ow. Ugh. That story just makes me like, ooh, because it's like, I know. But you can't. But he's free. This day. Okay, that's the West Cork murders. Now we're gonna hear about so, yours. Is frustrating because the people who you think are guilty are free. Mine, they started out not free. Oh, so what's the name of it? The Lucasville Prison Riots. Ooh, and I honestly am surprised I didn't know about this before I did because I, know I feel nothing. like this would have been something. I mean. Granted, I wasn't I wasn't born when it happened, so right. probably the media news coverage was kind of dwindled out. It wasn't or whatever. Is that a big news? Yeah, dwindled's word. Dwindled's word. Yeah, thank you God. used it very well. Oh, so, thank you. It was in '93 uh-huh. is when this happened, so I'm sure that by the time I was old enough to know what the news was, it wasn't relevant. Big. Well, it's relevant, but not. It's not popular. Worthy, yeah. according to some. So. I'm going to have to kind of say it in a way that's very condensed. That's okay. Because um, Lucasville, Ohio? Yes, that is the one. In Ohio. And I'm sure many other people probably, it's very common that they knew this, but I did not. I I was born in 97. I need to know. This is before my time. I want to know it. So, what the craziest part is, I'm just going to start off with, this is kind of like the general idea of what happened like the kind of like concept yeah so i just want to say so it's a prison riot this mm-hmm. prison was built in i believe 72 that sounds good let me look at my notes i like that. 1972 Hell i know yeah. high five okay. on that so it was born in it was born. <laughs> Me too. It was born. Yeah. Um, it was built in 72 and it was only meant to have not only this is a large number, but its capacity is supposed to be sixteen hundred inmates. Okay. Okay. So that's kind of a lot. That is a lot. I mean, I've never been well, to prison, I but I don't know. What is the average prison holding holding, holding capacity? Let's see. Um, 
Oh. It's so this is pretty small because well shit. Who knows? I don't know. Okay, keep numbers. going. Keep going. But it's supposed to hold sixteen hundred inmates. Okay. And this is supposed to be like a really nice prison of the time. So it was built in seventy two. It was twenty three million dollars to build. So if you think about it back in there, that's oh, like God. a lot of money. That is a lot of money. So it's supposed to be like a a nice facility. Yeah. Because it's a maximum security facility. Okay. So these are going to so, be housing like the some so arguably the worst of the worst. Yeah. Right. I mean, I'll get into it later. But okay. one of the main people, he was in there for carjacking and only had a, a year left. So not oh. all of them are the worst, but it did have a lot of really bad people, for yeah. lack of a better word. I don't know how else to describe it. Like murderers. There were some serial killers in there. Oh pedophiles, gosh. rapists, you name it. So they're all in there. And basically from 72 to 1990, it's pretty, it's honestly pretty chill. Like they really? had it kind of made. Really? Like they, I, so where I got this story was literally last night I watched it on Netflix. Ooh. There's an episode on, I think it's called Captive. Um, okay. I love it. Netflix documentaries. Same. Um, so it's called Captive, and they actually interviewed some of the inmates that were there when yeah. it happened. That's crazy. Yeah, it's really cool. Um, so this one guy, he was there, and basically he said that you could probably have more access to drugs in Lucasville than you would on the streets. Like, okay. it was, like, it was popping. Okay, it was a so that's kind of what you mean when you say, like, they had it made, like, they could kind of do whatever they Yeah, like, not had it made, like, oh, nice, happy prison, because yeah. prison's happy. But, but like, like, they could do, like, things. it was common that they would kill each other. Like, oh, shit. Yeah, like, it was, like, I listened to a podcast on it, too, because I don't know about you, but when I hear a story that I'm really interested in, not only can I just more. watch the episode, but I have to hear all the podcasts too yeah so i listened to this one i think it was um my true crime obsession okay. and they did a really good episode on it and basically she said there there was like so many murders within this prison that you could be waiting in line for food and the person in front of you would get their throat slit just what the like fuck? you wouldn't even know like like you had to be on guard all the time you were like you were you were always on edge because yeah. And that's and, not a good, like, psychological state to no, be and in. and now you, like, say that. Also, it was said that over 300, which seems small with how many inmates there were, but 300's a decent amount. They all had major psychological problems. Oh, shit. So it's so, just like a, like a melting pot of, like, psychological problems, like, anything murders and violence and drugs. Drugs, yeah. Ugh. There's this one guy on the, the, uh captive show on netflix yeah he was one of the inmates that was there when it happened and literally the whole time he kept just talking about his weed that he yeah. had he's like i was on my way to get some weed you know and then all of a sudden these like riots started happening and he's like what? and then all i kept thinking was i gotta go back to my cell to smoke my weed before they come break this shit down damn that, <laughs> that was some like, true shit right there okay dude like how priorities yeah. you know no i mean that's a real priority so up until 90 that's how it that's how it was. Yeah. Um, then they brought in, you could say, like, the big guns, I guess. Yeah. They brought in a new warden. Oh, God. Um, and I believe his name is Arthur Tate. Okay. So he's now the warden starting in 90. Mm-hmm. 
and he kind of like starts to like lock it down. He starts making everyone form single file lines. He starts making everyone follow these follow rules. rules. Like, yeah, and they're not used and to they, rules. And a big point to mention, and I don't want to go like too far into like the gangs or the like yeah. religious groups. Yeah, or yeah, yeah. that makes sense. That, I don't want to like go too far into that. But there were a lot of there were gangs. There were a lot of gangs, and he would purposefully put so rivals oh so what had happened so the maximum capacity is 1600 inmates yeah they had 2000 oh so good they were over overfilled good so they were doubling up in cells so that's great for a prison yeah so they were doubling in cells and he would like from what i've heard he would purposely put like people who wouldn't normally go together oh, into cells right, together just kind of like a I'm in charge here kind of attitude was is it what like, I've like this heard. attitude of like like did he maybe think it was a game for him I don't know I think he just kind of wanted to show him who his boss is the kind of attitude oh, that I got like look what I'll do like I'm the warden like maybe, I'll put you like a fear kind maybe. of thing I would guess I have that's just me guessing I yeah. don't know but oh my god so basically the boiling point was Tate the new warden mm -hmm. This is now 93. He decides, well, I don't know if it's him that decides or if it's, like, like it's the state her. that decides. Mm -hmm. But he announces that there's going to be this mandatory tuberculosis test. Okay. And they all have to have it. But a large group of the inmates were Muslim. And oh. they do not consume alcohol. And the test has phenol, which has alcohol in it. Oh. So they adamantly did not want to take this test. They It went against everything they believe in. Yeah. But he said, no exceptions, everyone's going to take like it. That's, like, crushing to, like, not not necessarily, like, morale, but, like, people You're not a person feel, anymore. Yeah. like, And I'm not, like, a, a devoutly religious person, but religion <laughs> is something that is ingrained in a lot of people yeah. for centuries since the beginning of time yeah. you know what i mean and so to take somebody's religious views and to literally shit on them and say i don't care you're not a person your views are not worthy they don't matter to me i'm not i don't care what you want yeah it's crushing i feel like to like just hum the humanity mm -hmm. like of these people so at this point um they're all basically fed up the inmates yeah and what ends up happening is there becomes what a lot of people call like an unlikely alliance oh. of gangs. Oh shit, that's yeah. fucking scary. <laughs> yeah. Like not to like be too like haha about this. No, like, that's scary. An unlikely alliance of gangs. Like it's already bad that there's gangs, gangs but to have them all be together against one thing. That's fucking scary. <laughs> so. Um, I believe it was the, these are the names of the gangs. Don't know where they came from, but this is what I read from my research. Yeah. It was the Gangster Disciples. Okay. The Black Muslims. Mm -hmm. And the Aryan Brotherhood. Holy, oh, hold on. <laughs> yeah. What the fuck? So these three gangs. The Aryan Brotherhood? Yes. Teamed up with <laughs> the Black Muslims? Yes. They formed an unlikely alliance. That here. is the understatement. Like history being made. That is the understatement of the century. Yeah, unlikely, unlikely friends. Like, no, oh that's like God. doesn't happen, kind of thing. But they right. formed an alliance. 
And their goal was to say, like, fuck this prison. Fuck you, fuck this prison. Fuck the guards, fuck Fuck the warden, all of you. We are not being respected. We are sick of the way you treat us. Basically, what I felt watching the documentary and listening to the stories. Yeah. And, like, all a lot of inmates, like, spoke out about it. And a lot of them, it seemed like the general consensus was that they weren't being respected as people. And I think that, like... Once you take that away from somebody, you don't know what they can do. No, you don't know what people are capable of. Yeah. It's kind of like, I don't know if this is like a really stupid comparison, but I'm going to say it. It's kind of like when you hear those stories about a plane crashing in the mountains mm-hmm. or people getting lost and like someone in the situation passes away and like these people, like their humanity is taken from them. And when that you happens, you don't know how you'll react. You don't know how you'll react. You might eat someone i might eat you you might and like, there are the you could i wouldn't blame you because it's like light you on fire yeah, eat your legs eat me up like there's not I'm hungry i don't know a lot but you sure could try okay but anyways okay, anyways so they're at their breaking point so the test is i'm not sure if the test was supposed to happen on easter sunday but this is when the riots happen okay The riot happened Easter Sunday, April 11th of 93. Mm -hmm. So it's unclear if either a prison inmate or a guard called out this, like, distress call, I guess you could say, over on L Block. And L Block is where everything happens. So um, there's a call out saying that there's a fight breakout in Uh L Block. And, like, this is a huge, like, L Block is, like, a big chunk of the prison. Like, okay. it's not just, like, a little wing on the side. Yeah. It's a lot. 450 inmates are that's in. That's, what, like, um, a fifth of them? Yeah. Are in this area. Oh, shit. That's a lot. Okay. Yeah. So, they call this distress signal, and then inmates are just running up and down the halls. And they're not allowed to do that. It's a prison. You've got to be in control of your inmates. Yeah. But they're running just everywhere. Running racket, literally. Yeah. And so all these guards respond Mm -hmm. to go down to the fight. And in a lot of sources, I've heard that literally some of the inmates that were not really, like, in on the big plans or, like, just some of the bystanders were literally telling the guards, do not go down there. You don't want to go. Oh, You don't want to go down there. That's terrible. Yeah, and they they had to go. That's their job, so they all go down there. A bit there was a lot of guards. They would go down there, and what you don't know is there is a inmate who is in charge of the recreation center. Uh-huh. He has access to the baseball bats. Oh my! He God. opens it up and starts handing out metal baseball bats to all these inmates. Oh. And so when the guards arrive to L Block to the fight, quote, whatever, we don't that's know if that's real or not. Fight. That's we don't know if it's a fight, but oh, so it, it might have been like a call to like draw the like, draw the them all in there, the guards to one place. Okay. So then the inmates start beating the guards with baseball bats and taking control of them, and then they've taken them all as hostage. What the fuck? Yeah. Yeah. And then um and then there's some other, there is this, like, area mm-hmm. that they're supposed to go to. Well, so they didn't take them as hostage right then. Mm-hmm. They, like, start beating them, whatever. Um, they're supposed to go to this area that's in their, like, manual. Their, yeah. In case of emergency manual. Oh, okay. Go to this room 
because all of the walls have like rebar in them. Okay. So you'll be safe. They can't break they in. They can't get in. It's not happening. So they go there. Turns out there's none of that in the walls. It's just cement. <gasps> it was like fucking made up. Yeah. They break down the walls, grab all the guards, and then strip them down, take all their clothes, rob all of their, like, take their wallet, take everything, and then dress them up as inmates. And oh, then handcuff shit. them and put them in the showers. Yeah. What? Yeah. And so this is the first day. And um, I'm guessing, like, I don't know if you're going to get to it, but, like, was there a lot of, like, deaths? So, yeah, I'm just, okay, just okay. going to get there. Okay, so, sorry, sorry, sorry. A lot of the inmates weren't necessarily associated to a specific group or gang they just wanted to partake but there were people that were mad at other people and now there's no one to tell them to not kill each other oh so everyone starts like fighting not everyone but a lot five inmates i believe yeah five inmates are murdered like within hours of the riot starting because they were quote snitches what? And one of the inmates in the documentary literally said, because snitches get ditches. Like, not stitches. Like, they go straight to the grave. Like, oh snitches get ditches. God, dude. So, they killed five inmates of their own. And then now they have... Oh, my God. I almost just said they killed five inmates right off the bat. <laughs> oh, no! <laughs> I'm sorry. No. I'm sorry. Bad pun. Bad Terrible. pun. No, but for real, one of them was stabbed, like, over 20 times. Like, it was, like, killed each other, killed each other. Yeah. And, um, so what happened next is they end up trying to negotiate with them. Right. Because at this point, I think- What else can you do? I think they have eight guards hostage at this point. Yeah. Um, so they end up trying to negotiate what they immediately do, like, the police and the- I don't know if it's the National Guard or whoever responds to a situation like that. They cut off all water and electricity to the prison to kind of like wear them down. You know, they can't stay comfortably there without water or electricity. That's it makes sense. Yeah. And then um, there's, I guess, like tunnels under the prison where they go underneath and they start bugging through the the floors. They start bugging different rooms and they they end up actually bugging one of the rooms that becomes the main like hub where they the leaders you could call them yeah gathered to like discuss their demands or whatever they yeah and like their plans so they ended up bugging that room right but so there ends up being like five main guys in charge and you don't know all of their names yeah that's Um, but they call them the the lucasville five and um one of them is george skates Mm-hmm. And he becomes, like, the spokesperson, you could call him. Okay. For the prisoners. Yeah. And like, the one who would negotiate. Yeah. Okay. So, he goes outside, actually, into the yard. Mm-hmm. And they're talking to him. And they tell him, like, to dial some number on the phone. And then they can talk to the police's negotiator. Yeah. So, they go inside. And he picks up the phone and calls that number. And starts telling them, you turn on, like, our water. You turn on our electricity then we'll let well maybe we'll let one guy go or something that makes sense um so this ends up going on and i'm gonna spoil how long it is guess how long they are Nicholson. held host held hostage. how many days how this many? goes on how many 11 what the 11 fuck? days did they get food so i think at some point they probably end like up, in the negotiations i think they end up um 
delivering some food and water just kind of like to keep the peace to them yeah but basically um what ends up happening so they have eight cards yeah on day two or about day two they tell them if you give us water and you give us electricity and you let us talk to the news Uh then we'll let one of them go and a lot of times like not to interrupt but with these hostage negotiations especially with multiple hostages it's kind of like it kind of pulls me back to like waco yeah in waco he wanted to have his message heard that was one of his big stipulations and that's where they're kind of at too yeah it's because it's like they feel like they have something they need to say, whether it's true or not, or or. But they it? want to be heard. They want to be heard. So, oh so gosh. they want the news, and they want the water and electricity, mm-hmm. and basically, like, because they they come up with a list of twenty one demands. Some one of them being that Arthur Tate gets fired. Oh my! Um, can you imagine being that guy? What is did, in your research like? Not to like jump or anything, but. What does he have to say? So he's interviewed in the captive um, oh, shit, documentary. Really? Yeah. And like at the end, he's like crying because it's like still like really hard for him and stuff. But like, can you imagine like being that oh, guy? Um, so they want the news and the water and electricity. And basically they're like, well, we can't really guarantee that the news even wants to talk to you. Oh, God. And they're like, I can't remember the direct quote. But he literally says something along, like, the George Skates guy. Yeah. He says something along the lines of, like, how long do I have to sit here and hold my nuts for you to give me an answer? Oh, my god. Yeah, like, they, like, we're just over it. They're like, don't play games with me. I'm over it. Yeah. Give us what we want. Because we don't want just the prison to comply with our demands. We want everyone to hear our demands so that you have to follow them. Yeah, because if, if you just say you're going to, there's no evidence. Yeah. We can't trust you. We already don't trust you. You're taking our humanity from us. Literally. You treat us like shit. And so this is like, for them, it's like they're collateral. Mm -hmm. Like, this is collateral. And in order for me to take your word, you're going to have something that is forcing you to stand by it. So day three comes and they haven't delivered on the news or the water electricity. Um, They end up seeing or hearing, or both, mm-hmm. that the police are basically making statements on the news saying, oh, I missed a very important part. Okay, So okay, okay. they haven't delivered. They put out a sheet on, mm-hmm. out one of the windows. Like the prisoners? Yeah, prison? and they wrote in really big letters, you have three and a half hours, or we will kill one of the guards. <gasps> and they and then they the police, they put out this like statement basically being like, We've heard this threat before. I'm not scared. Like, it's just a general threat. Oh, They're not no. going to do it. And they, they they, were able to see that on the news. I don't know how or without electricity. I'm not sure how they were able to no, access that. But they did find out that they basically weren't taking them seriously. Because a lot of prisoners. What year did this happen? 93. They could have. Maybe like there's a battery phone. power. Well, and if they have access to the radio. prison, maybe they've got radio access or maybe they have access to like a landline or something. If yeah. they're able to get into like the guard's office or something. Which they do. They take over that. So maybe yeah. they make calls and they can call if they have access to like a landline or something. Assuming the police didn't cut it, they would be able to make calls to friends or family or whatever and get mm-hmm. like inside fucking deeds. Yeah. So basically Ooh. they find out that they're not being taken seriously. Ooh, I'm getting oranges the new black vibes too. Yeah. Colin. But 
it gets wild. Okay. Um. So then, literally, like they're like, well, we have to like make a fucking statement. They don't believe us. We have to prove that we're serious. So they they don't know which car to pick, but somebody just picks one. Well, and it's and, like, so crazy because it's like. It sounds like there's this attitude of, like, they're not real people or they're monsters or whatever, but these are real people that yeah. feel like they're being put in this position. So you got to take these real people with real feelings, feelings and attitudes and, like, they're personable and they have to decide to do something horrific to get what they need. They, and they like, feel like they need. And we as the public are looking at them like they're less Disgusting. than or something yeah. or whatever, but they're not. They're normal to some level, they're normal people with real wants and needs. Yeah. Um, and basically, they end up picking um, on, um, oh, so actually, day three was when another inmate was killed. Oh, my gosh. Um, This is actually day five that, okay. they, that the guard is being questioned yeah. to be killed. Yeah. Um, so day five comes. They're not getting what they want. They decide to make a statement. They kill... One of the guards, they strangle him with cords and they go put his body out in the yard oh, and they just place him there and leave. And they're like, look at this bitch. Yeah. Like, we're going to do it. We're serious. And the saddest part to me is there's a school across the street from a prison. From a prison. What for, the yeah, fuck? That's what me and Caitlin said when we watched this what? last night. We were like, city council members zoned that. <laughs> that sounds great. No. So the families of all the guards were like living in the parking lot of the school. And the wife of the guard that was killed saw her husband be brought out to the yard and just placed oh there. Oh, God, that's awful. Yeah. So he's killed, and they actually negotiate with the prisoners that they can, like, respectfully come and get the body. So they let them come into the yard mm-hmm. to just get the body and then go. Yeah. So luckily, like, they were, like, it's not saying it's respectful, but say. as respectful as you can be after you kill someone. It's kind of like, it's kind of like, I mean, and... I don't know if this is a good parallel to draw, but, like, it's kind of like in war times where, like, in World War II, where after the battle would end or after the fighting was done, it was, like, come get your wounded, yeah. come get your dead, yeah. pay respects, you know, so or, like, on holidays or whatever. They let them do it respectfully and, like, without any trouble. Um, and then after this kind of starts the negotiations a little more. Because they're probably taken much more fucking seriously. Yeah, they are taken more seriously. Unfortunately, that's what it, it took for them. Um, oh my god, that's heavy. Then they said, we want a guaranteed radio on the news. We want to be on it. Like, not fucking around and this time. And if we do it, you'll get one of your guards back. Okay. And so then they set up this, like, table in the yard. They go out there and they make their statement. And they basically say, like, sorry we had to kill that guard. But... Uh, you didn't fucking listen. You guys weren't doing what we asked. It's and so it's hard. like, we really didn't. They even went as far as to say, like, we didn't even really want to kill that guy. We like that guard. But he he was, unfortunately, the one that, like, saw the most because he was one of the first ones to it's fight. It's so hard because, like, in such a weird way, it's like, what is the average person supposed to feel? Like, you feel like you almost sympathize with them because the demands that were being made by the warden or the state or whoever they were unreasonable. Yeah. But at the same time, it's like, where do you draw the line of what's acceptable and what's not yeah. in a fucking prison? Like, full of, like, people who have done unspeakable things. Ugh. It's like, I don't, you don't know, you know? Yeah. Um. So, basically what happens is they actually set up a radio um, they, like broadcasting. They, do it. They, they do, do it. it. They get one of their guards back. He, they release one. So, they follow through with their negotiation, yeah. which is a 
fairly in in such a shitty situation, that's a positive sign. Yeah. That your your negotiators are doing their job, their job well per se. Um, and then after that, they set up another negotiation that they want TV, and mm-hmm. they'll give up another one, mm-hmm. and that goes through. And the guy even went as far as to say that he was going to convert to their religion if they let him go, the guard. Oh, And so my they gosh. dressed him up in their, like, religious, like, garb, and they sent him out and did their, like, TV thing. And do you know if he really did? I don't know. I think at the end he ended up saying he just did whatever Seven. he had to do okay. to get out. Which is fair. Well, I would not convert to any religion yep. to get out of I'm a hostage situation. I'm Mormon now. Hello? <laughs> mm, well... Well, anyways, we won't, we won't dive into that one. Um, so basically, after all of that, yeah, it just kind of gets better. It starts to like fizzle out, but it ends up lasting eleven days. days. So gets better. Gets better. Yeah, it still So what ended up being the deciding factor to end the whole thing? Um, they wanted representation. So they sent out, I don't know if he's like a lawyer or what his official title would be, but they sent out this guy. Like a prisoner? No, like a like an, like a lawyer for oh, the prisoners. Because they wanted like somebody Waco. to talk to him. It's just like Waco in a weird way. Yeah. And so they set up this like table, one on the inside and one on the outside, so they could just sit down and talk at the table. Like real negotiations. Yeah. So they sit down and basically they're like, is there any way you can guarantee that our lists of demands are going to happen? And he was like, No. I'm not gonna bullshit you. Like I can't, can't make it happen. But you I guys are try. doing not a good thing. Yeah, we can't say you that we're gonna follow through. You're not starting off looking great. Yeah. So basically, they just have to trust this guy that he's gonna do their do his best to get them off with whatever. Yeah. Like the least that they can, and yeah. they they do it. What the they fuck? decide to give in, and then they release. I think there's five more guards. Yeah. That are being held in there yeah and like being like mentally like traumatized the whole time yeah and they let them all go and they let all the prisoners go it all just fizzles out per se yeah but then they go through and they do like a whole tour and they're it was like the biggest like havoc has yeah gone amongst throughout the whole city there were they had even put beds up to make a maze in case they were like, like rated, rated the the officers would have to go through a maze instead of just coming in. Like they made it like they they thought that shit they out. like went hard in that prison and there was writing everywhere, blood everywhere. Oh my god! Like I made weapons everywhere. Like literally, someone made bombs out of batteries and stuff, and like it was ready to go for a war. It's just crazy, like what what these people were willing to do, and they felt so deprived of things that they felt like they deserved yeah and whether as an outside you know as a bystander looking back on something that happened in the past whether we agree with them or not these people felt like this was what they had to do and that doesn't mean that it's necessarily the right thing or the wrong thing but from people like us who've never seen anything like this we've never experienced anything like this it's really hard to be like that's like in some way, we know that it's wrong. There are it's elements. There are elements like, of it that is it's undeniable. But what do you just, do in a situation where you are not being heard? And it's really crazy because you think about it, and like the term that we use to describe these people is, they are prisoners. Yeah, they're literal 
prisoners. And so it kind of begs the question of like, what do prisoners do if they are not being heard? And it's, it's unlike imaginable what could come of it. It's heavy. But that's shit. definitely something that like, how do we prevent that from happening again? Yeah. yeah. And it's crazy. Like you really think about all of the COVID stuff and it's like, there were so many prisons and so many individuals that came out. Mm-hmm. With, did you see like those videos on Facebook of prisoners who had gotten their hands on like um, cell phones? Yeah, were there's recording. prison TikTok. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's crazy. I spent too much time on TikTok. <laughs> That's fair. Is it banned yet or no? No. I don't think it's actually happening. I feel like it's all just talk. That's insane. Like the 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 links that human beings are willing to go to because they deserve to have their needs met. And I'm sorry, but I'm not a religious person at all. And I have my own opinions on the matter, but everybody is entitled to their own beliefs, Mm -hmm. no matter what we feel about them. Like when it comes to religion, this is America. And the whole point of our, our country was, founded on this idea of like people deserve to have religions that they feel strongly about we deserve to be able to believe whatever we want we are a melting pot of cultures and religions and ethnicities and then to put all of these different groups all these different people with psychological problems different religious views from different backgrounds and gangs and all these force them all together and then take away their rights and see what happens and it's like on some level you know going to prison and committing crimes that certain rights of yours right. are going to be taken away in some way. Right. <laughs> right. Right. But I feel like every person is entitled to these basic needs of, like, food, water, shelter. And I feel like the freedom of religion kind of falls in that. In I agree. Way. And, and, and I'm not religious either, but, like, for some people, that's their life line that's what they live for and that's what they have it's like who they are Mm -hmm. well it's kind of like think about it in reverse like we aren't religious people by any standards but imagine if we were put into a place where we had to be yeah no fuck that like imagine i would write it yeah (laughs) and imagine that like it wasn't an option Mm -hmm. it it was your your right to not identify into a religion was completely taken away from you and there was nothing you could do about it. Like, I feel like maybe not immediately, but over time, like, that's going to fucking wear on you. Yeah. You know? Ugh. And you're already, like, and I hate to say it in, like, a rude way, but you're already capable of doing some pretty not good things. Clearly. Because you're there. Mm-hmm. And I feel like... Just put them together and you don't get something good. Imagine, like, going to prison having committed some stupid i don't want to say stupid because i mean well like that one guy that was part of the leadership who was doing carjacking yeah carjacking or think about like the one i always fall back on when i think of prison is like imagine like tax evasion oh yeah imagine being this like white collar upper class dude who just tried to fucking say piss off on my taxes for so long that you finally faced real prison time and then just being put into this population and a a chunk of these people, not all of them, but a chunk are murderers and rapists. <laughs> and you're, you fucking evaded your taxes. Yeah. And being 
around those people for so long and having to develop like I feel like prisons have their own hierarchy they have their own culture Mm -hmm. they have their own gangs and not even just gangs like they have I don't know the other term this is such a stupid term but I'm gonna say it like clicks yeah Yeah. and clicks is like such a childish way to put it but they do they have these groups of people that in any population they're gonna identify with each other Mm -hmm. and you are in prison for tax evasion but you're facing 10 plus years and you have to find a way to get by and to get by and like one of your needs is to socialize yeah and so you're gonna have to find what is your common ground what is the common conversation for somebody who's evading taxes with murderers and rapists pedophiles pedophiles and carjackings and drug dealers and people who have peddled drugs across international borders it's just crazy like you've got this melting pot of people in a place where they're going to take your rights away from you and they don't give a fuck what you think about it yeah oh the whole thing like just like that's like nightmare stuff like imagine being there and like seeing like them just no remorse just murdering each other oh and like gosh. all these people just being let free really to do as they please and it wasn't pretty it was like i'll have to show you later like some of the pictures are wild i want to watch it what was it called the documentary on netflix yeah captive captive mm-hmm. is it like a series about lots of different things or is it all about this you know I want to say that I know, but I watched one episode and then went to bed, so... No, that's fair. I think they're all different, Damn. but I don't know. So, to wrap everything up, there is just so much shit out there that people have to listen to. Like, if you... And I just have to say out loud to somebody else, so... Yeah, like, that's what I want this to be, is, like... Because true crime, in such a weird way, like, it's so... I don't know the right word, but I'm going to say it. I feel like it's so important to people. Like, it really is. Like, this, these stories and, like, these crimes and these, like, phenomenon, phenomenons and all of these murders and rapes, like, in for a lot of people, this is really, like, sick shit that mm-hmm. people have no desire. But this is real fucking life. Like, I want to know all the bad stuff that happens. Yeah. And in a weird way, like, it makes me feel better. And there's, like, and maybe this is twisted and maybe people will feel badly about this, but I don't think there's ever a reason to commit crimes, per se, or a reason to murder someone or rape somebody. But it's really interesting to me to, like, dig into the psychology of these people. Yeah, and like, what makes them do what they where, do. Where could it have been fixed? Mm-hmm. Where could the, maybe, depending on your political views, maybe the government shouldn't have stepped in, but a health healthcare system mm-hmm. or the government or the family or the school system like whatever you feel whoever you feel like is responsible for sociopathic children or homicidal military members like somebody somewhere in that system needs to step in and as members of like this society of this planet it's mm-hmm. important to understand like people do this shit this shit happens and if you think maybe about, not a prison riot happens often, but like bad things happen every day. But prison riots could happen, and mm-hmm. you've got people who break out of prison to commit more crimes, mm-hmm. or who just want to be free. And you think about like the West Cork murders. This is 
even if you think about all the evidence, like this is a person who joked about committing this murder, whether he did or didn't, for the sole purpose of accelerating his journalism career or because he wanted to or whatever bullshit comments he did or didn't make. And even if he's not the murderer, if he wasn't, the police did a thorough investigation of who might have done it. And it's nobody that she knows that they can prove. So just thinking about the fact that this shit happens every day. Like, mm, I want to know all of them. And we're gonna, and I don't think that I ever will, but I want to. We're gonna talk about the big ones, like we have to. But I want to talk about the small ones too, because nobody we should talk about them. We will. Okay, I think. Okay, do. And I want to, like a lot of the conversations, (laughs) a lot of the pod, the conversations, a lot of the conversations I listen to. Yeah. A lot of the podcasts, not wrong, and documentaries that I listen to focus a lot on like hometown not hometown per se like like, small town but like local local like american you know because when you watch netflix you're getting like american netflix Mm -hmm. and there's like the netflix that has content from other countries in other countries so we're kind of like subjected to more american crime it at the very least like north america in terms of like canada and mexico and the united states and i want to talk about on this podcast foreign shit like i want to know the australian serial killers and the european serial killers and what about prison riots in europe like yeah what's out there's there? a lot of options and we will never get to them all but we will sure do our best like goddamn we're gonna try <laughs> i like it it's good well for everybody that's listening you can comment live on this podcast but After every live podcast that Jenna and I do, we post the recording onto our podcast site, which right now is Podbean. As we get hopefully better at this. I think we say bigger, maybe not hopefully bigger. I don't know about bigger, but better is good. As we get better and we get like, we get our scripting down and our notes, we want to start publishing these to Apple and to Spotify so that other people can listen. So, Hello, Apple. Oh my god, Siri listened to... Look at how much of the Siri listened to. The whole thing. She took everything... Okay, anyways. You guys can comment on our podcast, on our on our live show, and on the recording that I'm going to post. We try to name them the same thing. So if you guys have a murder that has bugged you for years, if you're interested in true crime... Or, or one you, that you don't know about, that you want to know about, yeah. I will find out for you. My favorite ones to talk about are the ones that I heard like growing up mm-hmm. or hometown. Like there was a story in my hometown of a young teenage girl. It was right after I moved from Michigan and she was found dead in a park less than a, I want to say it was like three blocks from my house. This was oh. like, literally you would go to the end but of th- my street and that's the park. And she um, was found dead there. And so I don't know a ton about it or why it happened, but well, let's find out. I want to know other people's hometown stories. Like, even if you're not big on true crime, what's a story that you heard growing up that you're just like, how did that happen? What happened with that? What's new? Yeah. You know? Ugh. Shit's crazy. All right, friends. Well, thank you all for listening to us. Comment on our podcast. Feel free to share this because we're not super good at this, but hopefully one day. I 
enjoy it and I aspire to be good, but yeah. we will maybe get there one day. And if that's not, my that's goal. fine. That's my I'm goal. having fun. So share this, comment on our on our podcast. Ooh, Colton has a comment right now. Oh, it's Caitlin. Oh, sorry, Caitlin. Hi. Hi-Fi Shop Murders oh, in Ogden. I think I know that one. I will do the research, and I will do that one. Dibs. Really? Yeah, Okay, dibs. deal. All right, guys. Thank you for listening. Comment on our podcast with good stories. We want to research them. And I want to I hear stories that I don't know anything about. Like, it's cool with, like, John Bonet and, like, even the West Cork made national news. But I want people to share ones that I would never know. Shit. Yeah. I like it. All right, guys. Have a great night. Bye.